So Isaiah chapter 8, beginning in verse 16, reading through chapter 9, verse 7, because this is the word of the living God. You are the people of God on account of the grace of God, and this is the Lord's day. Would you please stand, if you are able, to signify your eagerness to hear God speak. Isaiah 8, beginning in verse 16, Isaiah wrote as he is carried along by the Spirit of God these words, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. With justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
Church family, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. And a woohoo, indeed. I wouldn't mind a little more of that. When you consider, brothers and sisters, this season of Advent filled with the festivities, anticipating the arrival of Christmas, what comes to your mind? On the one hand, I do think of fond memories, memories that I have accumulated throughout my life, songs, tastes, certain smells even, decorations, And much more fill my heart with anticipation concerning the arrival of Christmas. Much about this time of year is indeed a delight. On the other hand, if we're honest, this season is also characterized by challenges. In fact, just the other day, Tana, my beloved bride, and I were sitting around in our our living room on our two chairs where we like to sip on coffee early in the morning. And we were visiting about the amount of sickness that we have endured over the years throughout this time of year. Families, have you noticed this? Just plagues so many families this time of year. For us, of course, this has meant even hot trips to the hospital as we have been afflicted and under the Lord's sovereignty with a particular genetic disorder. It seems that every year we've talked about this. Our our family has grand plans and we want to do this and we want to accomplish that. And just before those plans come to fruition, we are faced with a particular ailment or a particular sickness. It's interrupted, as it were, by an unwelcomed companion. For some of us, even, this season brings with it the challenge, the painful challenge and memory of the loss of a loved one. This season reminds us of who is not here with us to celebrate. Every year, I observe characteristics of the season that we are in that remind me of the loss of of my pops, the man who raised me, who passed away about six years ago. But this really brings us to the reason this season is so wonderful, actually. The reason Advent season is so enriching and Christmas is such a delight. This season, you see, highlights our hope in the Savior who has decisively defeated our chief afflictions. That's what this season is all about. We are people indeed waiting. We are people indeed hoping. But we are also people who have received the security of the cross and the empty tomb the down payment of the Holy Spirit and the promise that as Jesus Christ has come the first time, he will come a second time. And so this season reminds us all as followers of Jesus Christ that while we still do exist with the unwelcomed guests of loss, of pain, of sickness, of death, of anguish, our final rescue is Certain. That's what Advent season and Christmas really is all about. And this tension that we experience as Christians this season, this time of the year, actually is precisely what we find in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So if you're taking notes, 
We are going to unpack this text in three stages. Three stages this morning. First, we're going to look together at what God promises to do. Isaiah chapter 9 begins with what God promises to do. And it begins quite broad in verse 1, and then it adds increased specificity in verses 2 through 5 or so. So first, what God promises to do. Second, we will find and unpack how God promises to do it. What God promises to do and how he promises to do it. And we find the answer to the how in verses 6 and 7. And then finally, after we look together at what God promises to do and how God promises to do it, we will conclude our time this morning with how we should respond to God's promise. How we should respond to God's promise. So what God promises to do, how God promises to do it, and how we should respond in faith by the power of the Spirit of God this morning to God's promise. Well, let's begin with what God promises to do. Look down at the text with me, if you would. Verse one, we'll read that verse again together. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So we're gonna start broad here. And this is really our answer. Simply put, God promises here to rescue his people out of anguish. That's the promise. What does God promise to do? Rescue his people out of anguish. Now, Isaiah adds, as I mentioned a moment ago, increased specificity as he moves through the text. But that's the broad answer. God makes a promise through Isaiah the prophet to the people of Israel that someday he will rescue them out of their anguish, out of their suffering, out of their contempt and grief. Isaiah makes a distinction. You may have noticed this in the text. He makes a distinction between the former time and the latter time. There are these two eras that Isaiah mentions here. Verse one, notice that in the former time, God brought Zebulun and Naphtali, which by the way are two northern tribes of Israel, that end up serving as representatives in the text of the people of Israel, and in particular, the inhabitants of Galilee, a place of tremendous significance in the ministry of Jesus. But here, the former time, in the former time, God brought Zebulun and Naphtali into contempt or humiliation. You may have noticed when we read the text of chapter eight, chapter eight concluded with God's people in deep darkness and distress. Did you notice that? And this imagery of darkness, by the way, is a way of describing the absence of spiritual sight, the absence of spiritual life because Israel's refusal to submit to God's good instruction because of Israel's refusal to follow the lordship of the God who had rescued them because they insisted on going their own way and walking in darkness, God's judgment rested upon them. And that's where Isaiah chapter eight concludes. Israel is dwelling in deep darkness And just as a bit of an aside, this this is likely a reference, a historical reference to Assyria's conquest, this ancient nation, pagan nation that the Lord used actually as an instrument of his judgment 
against the northern tribes of Israel. This is perhaps a reference to a serious conquest of the northern tribes, which occurred around 734, 733 BC. So they began this conquest at that time, and then in 722 and 721, they finally removed Israel out of the land of Canaan and into Assyria. They deported God's people out of the promised land. This was indeed a dark era for the people of Israel. And so that's the former time, this time characterized by by darkness, by judgment, by the absence of spiritual sight and spiritual life and by the presence of God's judgment. But this former time of darkness and humiliation would not last forever. God would revisit his people as verse one goes on to say, in what is called the latter time. And he would do this, as verse one indicates, by making, notice the language, glorious, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. That same land, Galilee, which is a portion of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, And notice, by the way, that Galilee is referred to here as Galilee of the nations. To my knowledge, there's no other location in the Old Testament where Galilee is referred to as Galilee of the nations. This is a way, I think, for God and his goodness to remind us of the promises that he granted to Abraham and his offspring, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, that through Abraham and through Abraham's seed, God would bless all the families and indeed all the nations of the earth. And so here, God reminds us that his promises are not unique to ethnic Israel. His promises get universalized to include people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Right here in Isaiah chapter 9, referred to simply as Galilee of the nations. And then as I mentioned, after verse 1, and we get this broad promise that God indeed would rescue his people out of their anguish, out of their suffering, out of their humiliation, verses 2 through 5 go on to describe in greater detail what God promised to do. And I need to qualify this just a bit because I think this has tremendous payoff for us as followers of Jesus, and we'll see that in just a moment. This text is filled with promises about the future. But what's ironic about these promises is that they appear grammatically in the past tense. So God is promising something in the future, but he chooses to use the form of Hebrew verbs that most often refer to what has already happened. Why is this significant? Because as God will go on to say in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, his word always accomplishes what he promises. In fact, the fulfillment of the promises of God are as certain to materialize as events of the past. So it's as if Isaiah can speak about these events as already having been accomplished. And we'll come back to that in just a few moments. So let's look briefly at verses two through five where God gets more specific about what he promises to do. First, notice God will give light in place of darkness. You see that, verse two? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them is light shone. I'll try not to get, not to get too far into the weeds here, but I do think this 
something rich about this and perhaps a passage that many of you are familiar with. The Septuagint, which is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and by the way, the Septuagint was the most common translation used by the early church. The Septuagint actually, to get at the sense of deep darkness, opts for a phrase that we could translate shadow of death. Shadow of death. And the word in Hebrew, I won't mention that word to you, but if you want to know the word, you can come up afterward and we'll talk about it. But the word in Hebrew is the same word used in Psalm 23, verse 4, traditionally translated shadow of death. Yea, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. It seems likely to me that something like deep darkness that includes, that communicates the absence of spiritual vitality and life is communicated by this Hebrew word. It's actually quite difficult to know precisely what is intended. But what is clear is that there is complete darkness and in in that reality, there is the absence of life and God, God promises to rescue his people out of that darkness and into light, which of course, which of course might remind you of Genesis chapter one. When God speaks into darkness, let there be light. And there was light. Perhaps it reminds you of John chapter one, verses four and five, that declares in him, that is in the word who became flesh, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so this is a part of God's promise here as God's people at this point were dwelling in deep darkness in in the shadow of death, we might even say, according to the Septuagint. These people received the promise that God would rescue them out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life. Secondly, notice, again, more specificity in verse three, God will give joy in the place of anguish. So not only will God give light in the place of darkness, he will give joy in the place of anguish. Look at verse three with me. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And notice how many times joy occurs or something similar occurs in the text. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. You hear the emphasis? Recently, I had the opportunity to visit one of our beloved Sunday school classes. It happened to be Joe Pope's Sunday school class where many of our spiritual mothers and fathers gather during the Sunday school hour for worship. Joe teaches the word of God so faithfully, so thankful for him and for his ministry. I know they are as well. And Joe asked the question, something along the lines of what makes a Christian distinct from others in the world? How are Christians different? What might others see in the lives of Christians that distinguish Christians from those who do not yet know and treasure Jesus Christ? And One of the brothers or sisters in the class, I don't remember who, responded, joy. Joy distinguishes the follower of Jesus Christ from those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus. And this is thoroughly biblical. This is precisely what God promises to do when he sends the Son. And we're gonna get there. When he sends the Son to rescue his people out of darkness into light out of anguish, into joy. 
But also notice in verse four that God will give freedom in place of oppression. Freedom in place of oppression. As verse four says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. That is to say, God, the day is coming, or God says the day is coming concerning Israel when he will break the oppression of Israel's enemies, the people who oppress the people of God. And this really likely refers back to Judges chapter seven and Judges chapter eight, where the Lord granted an unlikely victory over Midian through a man by the name of Gideon. Gideon actually went to war, you may recall, with a reduced army of 300 people. Remember this? Gideon had an army and the Lord said, nope, too large. I'm gonna shrink it. No, no, still too large. We're gonna shrink it more. And then finally, Gideon has an insignificant number of people, a motley crew going to war against Midian. What's the point? Well, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. All right? God chooses what is apparently weak in the world to defeat that which is strong. That's precisely what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter one. So the way God was going to rescue his people would in some ways image and mirror God's victory through the 300. God would use what was unexpected, what was apparently weak, and inadequate to rescue his people. God would use the birth of a baby boy and eventually, of course, God would use Roman crucifixion, the instrument of capital punishment to rescue his people out of death into life. He would use the death of God the Son incarnate to rescue out of darkness into light, out of anguish into joy, out of oppression into freedom. And also notice verse five, he would rescue out of war and into peace. As verse five says, for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What God promises here is the absence of war altogether. What was used in war will no longer be needed, be burned up, and there will only be peace. So this is what God promises to do. He promises to rescue his people out of anguish, out of suffering. And then he grants increased specificity throughout verses two through five. Secondly, notice how God promises to do it, verses six and seven. How does God promise to rescue his people. Look at verse six and then look at verse seven with me. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do 
this. Very simply, Israel's hope was in the birth of a child, a son. And this son would bear the weight of the government. In other words, he would reign as king. In fact, in verse seven, we learn that this king is the fulfillment of God's promises to David in 2 Samuel chapter seven. So how does God promise to rescue his people out of, out of anguish, out of suffering, out of spiritual death, spiritual blindness through the birth of a son who would reign as king over God's kingdom forever? And then in verse six, Isaiah turns to the name of this son. I want you to notice, by the way, that, that name is singular, not names plural. And I think this is significant for this reason, These aren't separate designations for this son. These are characteristics and facets of his singular name and who he is. He will, notice, that is this son, he will be wonderfully wise on behalf of his people as the wonderful counselor. Perhaps, by the way, a a title for war. Generals who were victorious were considered counselors. So it is through this son that God's people will receive victory over their enemies. He will be the power of God with his people as the everlasting God. Some commentators trying to preserve a historical context that they, I I would suggest to you, place upon the text, want to say that this can't mean that he is God after all. We don't get this kind of clarity until the New Testament. No, I think it does mean indeed that he is divine. It's a mystery, of course, until the incarnation, and of course it remains a mystery to us today, but we see this come to fruition when God the Son becomes human while remaining truly God. And they don't have that kind of clarity in Isaiah chapter nine, but there is clarity regarding the nature of this Son being divine to such an extent that he's able to be called everlasting God. In fact, Just a couple of chapters before this, this this son is introduced as Emmanuel. God with us. Moreover, notice, as a father cares for and protects his children, so the coming son would provide everlasting fatherly protection as the everlasting father. Again, I think this is an aspect, a characteristic that the son brings to us, even to such a degree that Jesus is able to say, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And then finally, notice the Son's reign, his rule, would be characterized by peace, enjoyed among his people as the Prince of Peace. This is who the Son would be. And then as verse seven concludes, I love this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Israel, you will not accomplish this. You bring the problem. God will provide the solution. In fact, this word zeal actually could be translated jealousy. The jealousy of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God is jealous to have what is rightfully his. God is 
jealous to claim what is exclusive to him. The complete allegiance of his people. And this jealousy, this zeal, this passion is in favor of his people and results in the rescue of his people, according to verse seven. This is not, this is not jealousy that destroys. This is jealousy that rebuilds. This is not jealousy that kills. This is jealousy that grants life. Jealousy that rescues. So again, how does God promise to rescue his people out of anguish by the birth of a son who would reign as God's promised king forever? Now the birth of Jesus Christ, and you know this, many of you do, perhaps not all of you. The birth of Jesus Christ was the beginning of the fulfillment of this passage where God promises to rescue his people out of anguish, out of darkness into light, out of sorrow into joy, out of war into peace and so forth. But Christ wasn't merely born, right? We believe as followers of Jesus Christ, according to God's promises and according to God's word, that this son was born, lived in perfect obedience to the father, never sinned, committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That is, he perfectly obeyed on behalf of his people. He did what we should have done but could not do. You see, his substitution for us didn't begin on the cross. His substitution for us began in the incarnation. In fact, one early Christian theologian, a man by the name of Irenaeus, I happen to be fond of Irenaeus, spend a fair amount of time with him. I know him, he doesn't doubtless know me. But Irenaeus talks about the importance of Christ sanctifying every stage of human existence. Why is it that God the Son did not come to earth as a full-grown man? Irenaeus says in order to sanctify infancy, to save infants. Why is it that God the Son incarnate became a toddler in order to rescue toddlers, Irenaeus says. Why did God the Son incarnate become a teenager? Glory to God to rescue teenagers. And teenagers should shout amen. And why did he become an adult in order to rescue and sanctify adults? And this Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father and his obedience climaxed on the cross. He obeyed the Lord according to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 to the point of death, even death on a cross where he paid the ransom for sinners like us. He defeated death by death. He did what one poet says, he defeated death at its own game. And he entered the grave. That is to say, and by the way, the, the ancients called this descending to the place of the dead or descending into the grave. Some people translate that descending into hell. Why, why is this significant? Because Christ is experiencing what it means for us to die. Why? He's rescuing us out of death. And in order to rescue us out of death, he has to undergo death. 
He has to go to the place where he must rescue people out of the grip of our greatest oppressor and enemy. And he's dead for three days. If you're counting inclusively, he's dead for about a day and a half. If you're counting exclusively, both ways of counting in the early church were common. And on the third day after dying on Friday, he was raised from the dead on Sunday morning in glorious power and installed as God's forever king on our behalf. So Isaiah chapter nine points us to the birth of that son who has decisively rescued us by means of his incarnation, life, death, and resurrection and will someday return to grant us the final fulfillment of what he secured in his first coming. That's where Isaiah takes us. And that brings us to the last question, how should we respond to God's promise this morning? The first way we should respond to God's promise fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ is simply this by trusting in and surrendering to Jesus Christ. The only hope sufficient for sinners like us, the only hope for people who dwell in darkness but need light, who dwell in death but need life, who dwell in anguish but need joy. And so if you've not surrendered to Christ, if you've not embraced Jesus Christ, if you've not come to the point at which you recognize your own moral and spiritual bankruptcy, then I plead with you this morning to come to grips with who you really are in a room filled with people who are just like you, listening to a pastor who is just like you, a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And if that's where you are, and if you'd like to talk more about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ and to follow Jesus Christ, we would love to come alongside of you and you alongside of us. And so after the service, if you just want to have a conversation or you just want some prayer, or perhaps you have questions, then as you exit this room, take a left. And on the right-hand side out there, there is a room called the Crossroads. It's labeled just above the entrance. And there will be someone in there who would love to visit with you about what it means to trust in, treasure, and serve this King, this Son, and this Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, how should we respond to God's promise? Let me give you a couple more. So first, trust in Jesus Christ. Secondly, by seeing the suffering of this life through the lens of Christian hope. by seeing the suffering of this life through the lens of Christian hope. Recall that Isaiah used the past tense consistently throughout this prophecy to describe what was not yet. And so it is with us as followers of Jesus Christ. The future fulfillment of God's promises is just as certain as past events. And so for us, as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ, we can wait with eager anticipation knowing that Christ has secured our final destination. And this is why I think the Apostle Paul is able to describe these terrible moments of his own suffering 
being stoned, being shipwrecked, being whipped with 39 lashes among the Jews, experiencing anxiety on behalf of the church. He's able to describe all of that as light and momentary afflictions because he sees them through the lens of the coming kingdom when Jesus Christ returns to this earth because he compares them to the coming glory that will be his when Christ finalizes what he began in his first coming. I'm reminded of another early church scholar, Jerome, perhaps you've heard of Jerome. If not, that's okay. Famous for translating the Vulgate. But Jerome wrote in his prologue to Isaiah, we have some of these ancient commentaries actually, and in his prologue to the book of Isaiah, he wrote that Isaiah might more properly be called an evangelist rather than a prophet. After all, Jerome says, Isaiah presents the mysteries about Christ and the church with such clarity that he even appears to speak of these things as having already passed rather than as if they were still in the future. Isaiah functioned with Christian anticipation, Christian hope. This season, church family, reminds us of oppression. In the midst of the festivities, in the midst of the joys and in the midst of the wonderful time we have with, with loved ones and friends, we also are reminded of, of sin, of sickness, of, of death, of emotional injury, of broken relationships. But during this season, we are reminded that all of these things are temporary and that Christ has overcome every last one of them. Third, and finally, in addition to trusting in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's promise and seeing the suffering of this life through the lens of Christian hope. Third, live as members of God's kingdom. Live as members of God's kingdom. Our lives as followers of Christ are opportunities to manifest characteristics of God's coming kingdom in the present you understand that the world around you gets to experience the coming kingdom by interacting with citizens of that kingdom. They get to learn more about the coming king by interacting with sons and daughters of the coming king, brothers and sisters of the coming king. So if Christ is king in our, in our lives, our activities, our relationships, the words we speak, the actions we exude should reflect submission to Christ's lordship. Not, of course, as an attempt to earn the favor of God, but out of a heart of gratitude that grows out of a group of people who have received freely and by grace God's favor. That's what a life of obedience is all about. It's, it's the result, it's the fruit that grows out of the root of God's grace. And so faith in Christ, brothers and sisters, is not simply affirming truths about Jesus, right, in the way that we would affirm two plus two equals four. He's no mathematical equation. As important as math is, students. 
Now, faith in Christ is, is more closely akin to a life yielded to the authority of Jesus Christ. Submission, surrender, love that results in obedience. So do others, do others experience the coming kingdom by relating to you? Husbands, does your wife taste of the coming kingdom simply by being married to you? Wives, does your husband partake of the coming kingdom simply by interacting with you? Parents, do your children have the privilege of tasting and seeing that the Lord is good simply by being your children? Don't misunderstand me, okay? Please. You will not do this perfectly. I know you thought you were going to a moment ago until I told you otherwise. You will not, you will not demonstrate the coming kingdom perfectly, but by God's grace, through the indwelling spirit, and by the mercies of Christ, you can demonstrate the coming kingdom legibly, faithfully. Is that indeed what God is doing in and through you? I would submit to you that if you know the Lord, it is, in fact, what he's doing. Well, we have observed what God promises to do. He promises to rescue his people out of anguish. Second, we found how God promises to do it by the birth of a son who would reign as God's promised king forever. And then finally, we identified ways the Spirit is calling us to respond this morning. First of all, by trusting in this promised son, Jesus Christ. Secondly, by seeing the suffering of this life through the lens of Christian hope. And then thirdly, by living as members of Christ's coming kingdom. Recently, Tana and I were invited to enjoy an evening of Christmas festivities with a group of members in our church who met at the McLean household. We enjoyed a meal together, played a game. I think I got last in the game. What's that tune or something like that? And well... Uh, let's just say many in the room were more seasoned than I am in terms of age. And uh, they were older tunes. And so we had a blast with brothers and sisters in the faith. And then after we enjoyed a meal and played What's That Tune, then we got into our cars and caravaned over to a local cinema where we watched a show. And the show was about Henry Longfellow. If you don't know Henry Longfellow, he was the famous American poet, wrote a number of things, but he wrote the poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And so the entire show is about, about the writing of this, of this poem. His life, of course, and his, his life of suffering, life of privilege, interesting, and life of immense suffering. And this climax is, of course, in him writing the poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It's a wonderful Wonderful show. Longfellow, by the way, was never a part of an Orthodox church. 
He was Unitarian. Perhaps this changed before he died. I sure hope so. I hope he came to trust in the risen Christ. But what he wrote in this poem, I think well represents the hope we have in Christ in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of loss. Listen to these words and we'll close with this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant, sublime, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, a cursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the heart stones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you this morning for the confidence we have on account of the fulfillment of the promises found in Isaiah chapter 9 concerning the rescue of your people out of anguish, out of death, out of suffering through the birth of a son, a king who would reign forever, Jesus the Christ. We're thankful, Father, that through Christ, indeed, we can be confident that in the midst of a life that is not always characterized by peace, we can be confident that indeed the day is coming when the wrong shall fail and the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Until that day when Jesus Christ returns, give us perseverance. Give us a peace that passes all understanding, that guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus and give us the privilege of demonstrating to a watching world the characteristics of the coming kingdom and the character of the coming king. We pray this in his name and in hope of his return together and all God's people said, amen.